Daddy's Girl, written by Isabel Cook, and narrated and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Sugar-coated words, honey-spun verbs, ego-inflated, puffed up and bloated. Paddy and tantrums as you slump in the chair, a china doll never short of what to wear. Sport, rotten. If we get to the bottom, why you behave, or rather don't behave, I wonder, is there a sweet child to save? Silken hair, silken tongue, she's daddy's brat, she can do no wrong. In his eyes she is his girl, sweet, so sweet, her tongue will curl, she stamps her feet and gets her way, but she will get her comeuppance one day. The day is here, she has gone oh so wrong, too late to put defensive words on her tongue, Daddy's child has broken the law. She can stamp and spit, scratch and claw, but it's too late, she's not so sweet anymore. And Daddy wonders what on earth it's all been for. Reborn, written and narrated by Denise Dowdle-Stent and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. It is a beautiful poem about a floral awakening. It is time now, little leaf, time to unfurl, tendril soft and feather light, from beneath your canopy of emerald light. Peek out now, little one, you no longer need to hide. Turn your sweet face to the sun's warm embrace. Behold its gentle touch, and allow yourself to wake. For many a season has passed, as you remained sleeping, your blanket of earthly slumber is now ready for peeling. No longer will the shadows shade and cosset you, for now you have a new guardian, as your elder stands beside you. Infinity beheld within their soft angel light and knowing gaze, their fluttering leaves gathering you into divinity. A timeless love unfolds, powerful and all-encompassing. It will shelter you from raging tempests and scorching heat, buffer you from the fractalized frost giant's veracity, and the clutching grasp of its offspring, their spindly serpentine fingers hungrily reaching out to entwine you in an icy fusion, whispering promises of peace, stillness, and eternal confluence. But you are strong now, brave, unafraid. You glow from within, an effervescent luminosity. Through your blood a power thrums, surging through your cells, bathing them in the warmth of butter-soft healing balm, protecting you from clawed predators, from fanged beasts, and those who mean you harm. You are in, and as, oneness now your timid petals turned upwards towards the motherly sun. You no longer fear, no longer stand in shadows, 
No longer shield yourself from unseen foes. You are new again, healed from within, and ready now. Ready for your new world to begin. Accident Prone, written by Rosemary Emmett and narrated and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. making her way nervously along the corridor to the office of her new boss. She had joined the small engineering firm just two weeks ago as secretary to Robert Kingston. The previous day Robert had informed her he had an important new client to see and asked her to bring the coffee when he arrived. She happily agreed to the request. There was just one thing bothering her. When she filled in her application form she omitted mentioning she was accident prone. It didn't seem so important, after all, many people had this unfortunate trait. Emma's skills and smart appearance satisfied Robert. On this important day, Emma wanted to create the correct impression. Her neat brunette bobbed hairstyle and minimal makeup highlighted her clear, smooth skin. She wore a classic shirt-style blouse with pink and grey flower motif, teamed with a plain straight light grey skirt. To complete the look, she wore deeper grey kitten-heeled shoes. On a final check in her full-length mirror, Emma was satisfied she looked presentable. This gave her more confidence. She quickened her step and went into the kitchen collecting the requested coffee. On reaching Robert's office, she tapped lightly on the door and entered. Robert Kingston smiled and thanked her. Emma placed the coffee tray on the table and looked in horror, recognising the client who had turned scarlet. There were only a few seconds silence. Robert had a puzzled look and eventually asked the client if he was all right, wondering if the room was too hot. Before he could answer, Emma had inadvertently in her shock caught the edge of the table with the tray and hot coffee, milk and sugar had slid across the table all over the new important oh, client. The... the client shrieked in pain. Robert glared at her angrily. That was very careless of you, Emma. Please apologise and go to the kitchen and fetch kitchen towels and cloths to clean up Mr Jack Gordon. She apologised somewhat sarcastically, thought Robert. I wonder why. When Emma left the room, Jack Gordon said, You need to get a more efficient professional secretary, dozy cow, he mumbled. Robert ignored the comment, but made note of it, and replied briskly, Emma is very new and nervous. I'll be the judge of efficiency. Now, can we continue our discussion? I have a very busy day ahead. Jack Gordon sheepishly and unnecessarily adjusted his flashy tie, smoothed back his untidy hair, then half-heartedly agreed. At that moment, Emma appeared with a requested kitchen towel and cloths. 
Thank you, Emma. That will be all. I will see you when I have finished my meeting with Mr Gordon. She nodded, then went to her own small office further down the corridor, wondering what the outcome would be. Meanwhile, Robert Kingston ended the meeting sooner than planned, knowing he would never do business with this character. He looked sternly at Jack Gordon and said, I'm sorry, Mr Gordon. I don't think your suggestion will be any use to my company. I will close the meeting as from now. Good day to you and good luck. Jack Gordon left his chair and walked out of the room, slamming the door behind him. A short time later, Emma was apologising over a cup of coffee with Roberts Kingston and explaining her behaviour that day. She told him Jack Gordon was a supervisor at her previous job, always making inappropriate comments to her and he didn't like it because she ignored him. One day she'd had enough, telling him to grow up and stop being a dirty-minded schoolboy. That dented his ego. He thought he was God's gift to women. Emma started to apologise for not mentioning being accident-prone on her application form. Robert raised his hand, preventing her going on any further. I'll excuse it this time, but please try and be more careful in the future. I can't fault your work and your smartness. You have a pleasant personality, and the situation today couldn't have happened to someone more deserving. Emma smiled and replied, thank you. See you tomorrow. Remembering Lucy, written by Alice Goulding and narrated and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Lucy was the most accident-prone person I'd ever known, and as I had been her best friend at school since we were five years old, I should know. On our first day at school, Lucy was taken to accident and emergency with a tiny piece of plastic lodged up her nose, and things went downhill from there. She broke her arm at six. At eight, she nearly poisoned herself with ibuprofen tablets she mistook for Smarties. She didn't break her leg until she was 14 on a skiing trip. And over the years, she accumulated enough stitches to make a tapestry. At 18, she was admitted to A&E with suspected alcohol poisoning after celebrating her birthday in style. She got a certificate for that. Lucy, congratulations on making it to adulthood from the staff at A&E. Once she almost drowned on holiday, but that had been a happy accident. She was floundering in the waves and I screamed for help when the six foot tanned Adonis leapt into the water with his red surfboard and went to her rescue. The lifeguard fell for her, quite literally, after he rescued her. Lucy managed to trip on the sand. He lost his balance and they landed in a heap. They rolled about laughing. Six months later, Doug became her husband. On their honeymoon, she only went to hospital twice. Once after standing on a razor-sharp rock and cutting her foot, and the second, she got heat stroke after falling asleep on her sun lounger. 
Only Lucy could give birth on the side of the motorway. The car broke down and Doug had to get roadside assistance to alert the emergency services. The second time they were more careful. Lucy got to the hospital in plenty of time, but she was unaware that she was having twins. The second baby came as something of a surprise for Doug. Only one of her children inherited the accident-prone gene, but Lucy was now a qualified first aider. After all, she'd had plenty of experience to draw on. Ironic then that she passed away in her sleep on entering her fifth decade. Instead of the 50th birthday bash, it became her memorial wake. The funeral cottage left the funeral home to make the long drive to the cemetery with a procession of cars following slowly behind. We were three cars back when I spotted smoke. As this was Lucy's funeral, I called the fire brigade and it was a good job I did. It could only happen to Lucy. The hearse carrying her coffin burst into flames. They managed to get the coffin out, but some of the flowers got singed just as the fire brigade turned up. I thought this was supposed to be a burial, not a cremation, said my husband Terry. Lucy would have laughed. The funeral directors organised a replacement hearse and, with the help of the traffic police, we were escorted to the churchyard with no more mishaps. As we were running late, the vicar decided to shorten the service and get straight to the burial. He had one job, to celebrate the life of Lucy, to commit her body to the ground with reverence and to give thanks for the memory she gave us. With due pomp, he pronounced, let us pray to the Lord giving thanks for the life of Louise. We all winced. The second time he called her Louise, we all shifted on her feet and looked around to see if anyone else had noticed his mistake. By the third time, it was almost funny. Terry muttered, Lucy, you complete and utter. Thankfully, he muttered the final expletive too quietly for me to make it out. But I know it was something rude and I was in unanimous agreement. The vicar got to the final line and was raising his voice to a crescendo. They are blessed indeed, saith the spirit, for they rest from their labours. Suddenly there was a gust of wind. His surplus blew up and his amen became as he belliflopped straight into the grave on top of the coffin. It was slapstick comedy gold. We gave him a round of applause and Terry shouted, Bravo, Lucy! Of course, it would just be like Lucy. As her spirit rose up to heaven, she must have given the vicar a little push on the way. Lucy dearly loved to make her friends laugh. The wake was a party, everyone outdoing each other with their description of the vicar and his fall from grace. He scrambled out of the grave looking mortified, as well he should, and I hoped his arrogant persona had been humbled by the experience. We will all remember Lucy as the accident-prone, fun-loving person that she was, and know that she is looking down on us with love in her heart and a smile on her face. Heron Scent, written and narrated by Felicity Radcliffe. So this is one of my canal poems written whilst on my narrowboat. It's called Heron Scent, excuse the pun. What I've noticed on the canals is there's a big difference between rural and urban herons. Urban herons in our cities have got a lot of attitude. They're quite brave and they don't fly away when the narrowboat approaches. Rural herons, 
not so much. So here's a poem about rural herons. That's actually quite difficult to say. Maybe I should have called it countryside herons. Anyway, here we go. Heron sent in praise of rural herons. She enters stage left, aloft and aloof, on prehistoric wings. Poised and elegant, restrained in soft grey, scorning the graceless ducks. Patiently she waits, mute and immobile, intent on her quarry. Her merciless beak slays hapless victims with precision timing. She stands her ground, proud and defiant, as our boat approaches, then loses her nerve and takes to the sky, launched on languid wings. Lazily, she draws a well-worn circle upon the dusky clouds, before returning to stand sentinel in her favourite spot. Jackson the Daxon's Thought on Summer Written and narrated by Virginia Mayo and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith In the stillness of a sunny, silent Sunday afternoon, Jackson sleeps. In the madness of a mournful Monday morning, Jackson moves. He stirs, twitches, watches a blossom fall and land on his nose. In the curious quiet of collectively consecutive days, the blossoms fall. Silence rules. Jackson remembers days of joyful children pointing, pushing, patting and prodding as he danced in puddles. Jackson recalls sounds. Now his walks are soundless sojourns, save for a breeze in the trees, rushing water through the weirs. The flapping of gulls' wings overhead as moorhens meander in the shade. He sees distant figures on a sun-filled landscape. The swishing of trees, branches, bending, swaying and bowing. He begins to love the lushness of silence. So this stolen season of calm becomes the new normal for Jackson and us all. Silence sweeps across countryside. A peculiar peace plays in the park. Chases leaves over fields dotted with hushed humans, restrained, restful and reclusive. And so the land healed and the people healed. They learned to love the silence, a world less stressed and preferred it, like Jackson. The River Great Ouse Floods St Ives Town, written by Jean Fairbone and narrated and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Circular ripples swirl round and spin out into flat ironed rings which plop, pop and spout. Exploding septic foaming pouches where rats scuffle and scratch under ancient beamed houses. Recyclable rubbish in polystyrene cups collects in elastic pockets of reeds replete with takeouts cartons of single-use plastic. Peacock green petrol in pools produces kaleidoscopic colours. Houses with moorings wake up to gardens in their parlours. Children's shouts ring out, playing on mud-slippery banks and jetties 
covered in sludge, find black rot in wet, slimy planks. Granite grey sky stretches and ives to Fenstanton. Drizzle and floods blur horizons and skylines. Church clocks chime in line, then tick different times. Barrels in waterlogged basements host sewage spoilt wine. Children play out where the river's safe and sought after tadpoles and frog spawn are captured in jars with their laughter. Down by the quay's edges, the river sports wider ledges where the town swans gather and glide and do not hide, proud to paddle down river on smooth mirror-like glass, processing in stately fashion, imitating a floating royal fly-past. Apologies, written and narrated by Janet Nichols and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. I first met Dordor Mendoza on the night of the great storm. Sirens were blaring, the slow traffic was glaring, and I shivered as the wet seeped into my chest. The sooner I got home, the better. Can you spare any change, he begged from the floor of the grimy bus shelter, and his cough rattled as I put a fifty pence into his crusty palm. He was a wizened old man with the animal smell of damp dirt, and I wondered at the circumstances that had led him to endure the elements on such a wild night. Yet I had to hurry to get on my bus, and only had time to apologise for having no more money. It was only later in my journey that his half-dead face started to haunt me so much that I had to at least grant him the recognition of an impressive-sounding name. The name of Dodo Mendoza came from out of the blue. The next time I met Dodo Mendoza was on my volunteer shift at the hospital. The nurses were bustling between patients. The doctors were occupied and I was frantic to know how I could lend a hand. Help me please, Dodo pined in the voice of the dying and I felt the cold of her fading palm melting into the warm of my hand. She was a woman too young to be leaving a frantic world and I apologised to her for not being able to do more than just sit with her amidst the busyness. So I stayed holding her hand until her family arrived about two hours later. She'd gone by the time I arrived for my next shift, and I never did discover her name. Someone knew it, and maybe I was told, but the pace of my hospital life meant that it passed me by. Yet her dying voice and cold hand stayed in my mind, and I had to bless them too with a name to support my memories. I met Dodo Mendoza again on a beautiful Mediterranean shore. The flimsy boat had been sinking, with all of us bystanders thinking how amazing it was that any on board had survived. Help the baby, a man pleaded, as he gave me a child emaciated from the lack of mother's milk. It had been thrown on into the vessel by its mother, who had to stay behind, and whose death was therefore already certain. So all I could do was to cuddle and warm this newborn orphan, until we reached a medical centre where the staff asked me for a name to give it. Was it a boy or a girl? I didn't know. And so I said, Dodo Mendoza, and apologised for not being able to do more to help. There were others needing whatever clumsy efforts I could give. 
Who knows what happened to him or her? I just hope that the name was the right one. Strange, isn't it? I've met so many Dodo Mendozas in my life, all anonymous and eponymous, with no choice but mine over their name. I can only guess that the name originally came to me on that night of the great storm because it suited a beggar of unknown cultural origin. He could have come from anywhere, as could all of the Dodos, but I wanted a name to remember them by. Names seem to ensure that people matter, and all of these people have one memorable name to show that they matter to me. They're the cast of real, thinking, feeling and fascinating people who have made up my life story, and I'm left with huge regrets that I didn't do more when they needed help. So this is why I had to know the name of the person who gave me their kidney and therefore gave me a life worth living again. I had to know it, even if we could never meet for me to say thank you. And I begged the clerk to bend the rules just a little bit by letting me have a glimpse of the paperwork. I'd lose my job, she said. It's just not allowed, she frowned. But she was like me. She wanted to do something, even if it wasn't enough and so she apologised when she had to leave the room for a minute. The paperwork was still prominent on her desk. I had long enough to take a peek. It was a file of several sheets of paper full of medical jargon and with some illegible handwriting, but I eventually found a very brief reference to the donor. No, there was no name, but the clue was enough. He or she was simply referred to by the initials D.M., and it meant that I could give my saviour a name. I'm sorry I can't help you more, the clerk said as she returned. The tale you're about to hear is about the fragile mind of Margaret and her marriage, and it has a stark ending. Eggshells is written by St Ives-based Patrick MacDonald and performed by Sue Rodwell-Smith. <laughs> How best to kill him, she thought. She stared down at her husband. Tom was lying on his back, his mouth slackly open, snoring noisily. He had seemed to fall asleep almost immediately they had retired to bed, while she lay there crying softly in the dark. She couldn't sleep. Even his snoring seemed yet one more weapon deployed against her. She knew he hadn't really gone to sleep that quickly, that he had lain there awake, deliberately ignoring her obvious misery. God, she hated him. She thought back over the day's events. Their daughter Claire had travelled down from Sheffield for the weekend. Claire was a researcher for one of the big pharmaceutical companies, Astra something or other. Margaret could never remember. She had done a roast dinner for them all and had spent most of the afternoon preparing it. She had insisted on the two of them going for a walk together down by the river. She said she was fine on her own, more than happy pottering around the kitchen. As soon as they disappeared, she had poured herself a glass of wine. 
Half a bottle had disappeared by the time they came back, but she was careful to hide this in the drinks cabinet in the dining room, putting a fresh bottle in the fridge to cool. Then she prepared dinner. Roast chicken with roast potatoes, a carrot and sweet puree, cabbage, broccoli and courgettes. She also prepared a dish of sweet potatoes. Timing was the thing and she prided herself on getting it exactly right. Except this time, she didn't get it right. She had forgotten to put the sweet potatoes into the oven until the very last moment. Swearing softly under her breath, she now put them in. Never mind, she thought. I can serve them late. It will be fine. I'll just slow everything else down. Her husband and daughter returned. It had started to rain when they were out and the smell of their damp clothes filled the hallway. They both helped Margaret to serve up. Claire giggling when the chicken legs she tried to leave onto her father's plate toppled onto the kitchen table instead. Margaret pursed her lips. The table was fine and she knew it easily stained. She wiped the greasy surface where the chicken neck had fallen with a damp cloth. Whoops, said Tom. Good job that wasn't me or I'd be in the doghouse. Margaret glared at him a look that warned him not to do anything that might spoil the afternoon. Tom pretended not to notice. She left the oven on to give the sweet potatoes another five minutes to cook and then poured herself and Tom a large glass of wine. A Bordeaux, her favourite. You can finish serving up, she called to her husband. I've done my bit. Tom looked at his daughter and shrugged. They both guessed Margaret had been drinking. Eggshells, said Claire in a whisper. Eggshells, Tom agreed. They were sat at the table in the dining room, their daughter facing them. Tom beside her. Margaret stared at herself in the large mirror hung on the wall opposite. I should have arranged things differently, she thought. I should have made sure I was on the opposite side of the table so I wouldn't have to stare at my own reflection for the duration of the meal. Her face was flushed and blotchy, her hair an untidy mess of dark curls. All this was in sharp contrast to her daughter's flawless complexion and neat page-boy cut. She always looked so perfect. I was never like that. Where on earth does she get it from? Not me anyway she thought bitterly. Margaret turned to her husband. Can you get me a refill? She said, holding out her wine glass. Tom raised an eyebrow. You haven't finished that one yet. Well, it'll save me getting up again. Fine, he said. In the kitchen, he noticed the oven was still on and turned it off. He returned with the wine and settles himself to eat. Moments later, Margaret let out a cry. God, I've forgotten the sweet potatoes! She rushed out to the kitchen. Who turned those off? She called. 
Tom grimaced. I did. I thought you'd left the oven on by mistake. Of course I bloody didn't. You knew I had the sweet potatoes in there. She returned, wearing pink oven gloves and holding the tray of sweet potatoes aloft like a key piece of evidence proffered at a trial. These aren't cooked, she said accusingly. Well, that's not my fault, said Tom. You should have put them in earlier. You did this deliberately. You don't like them, so you made sure no one else would have them either. That's ridiculous. You're being irrational. You did it deliberately. You ruined this meal. Mum, said Claire, a note of warning in her voice. Leave it now. It was an accident. That's the end of it. Margaret stared at Claire. Tears pricked her eyes, humiliated by her own daughter. The afternoon sport by her unfeeling pig of a husband, almost as though he'd engineered the whole thing. Her own daughter, who she loved a description, siding with him. She stood up. I can't eat now. You've ruined everything. I spent all day preparing this meal for the two of you, and this is the thanks I get. Margaret, said her husband despairingly, please don't. Mum, Claire cried, sit down. Dad didn't do anything. I can't, said Margaret and burst into tears. I can't. I can't bear it. I can't. The following day it was still raining. The sky a suffocating grey. Her husband had got up early and she could hear him laughing downstairs in the kitchen with their daughter. Thirty years I put up with this, she thought. His condescending manner. How he managed to put her down and to humiliate her in front of their friends. Then he was all innocence afterwards, of course but he knew exactly what he was doing. And now he had turned their own daughter against her. Well, no more, she thought. Today marks the end. She told them she was going for a walk, needed some fresh air. Do you want me to come with you? said Tom. It's still raining, by the way. Are you sure this is a good idea? It's fine. I won't be long anyway. The rain became fiercer as she walked, almost as though it was warning her to turn back. Her jeans were damp against her thighs beneath her anorak, her trainers already spongy and wet. There was a wood close to the house and she turned into it. The plant she needed was close to where a tree had recently fallen a gaping wound torn in the earth, a hydra's head of twisted roots. She stared for a moment at the black bead-like berries, each held in a cluster of leaves like a star, almost like jewels offered up for her to admire. She slipped on a pair of disposable plastic gloves she had brought with her and carefully prized a number of the berries away from their casings quickly filling a small freezer bag. Blueberry muffins, she thought, his favourite. She could give him one of them tomorrow, 
once Claire had gone. When she got back, she found a note on the kitchen table, written in her husband's illegible scrawl. Gone for a walk, we'll buy a paper on the way back. Good, she thought. That will give me time I need to do these muffins. She mixed in some blueberries into the dough together with the belladonna berries. She had googled how many might be needed to kill an adult. Ten to twenty, it seemed. Far too many for a single muffin. Well, he's greedy enough to eat two at a sitting, so that should be enough, surely. I just need to give him a bit of encouragement. Once made, she placed him in a large cake tin and hid it in one of the cupboards behind some packets of cereal. She barely had time to wipe down the work surfaces to remove the residues of flour and pastry left there when she heard the front door open and the two of them bounced into the kitchen. Cock completely soaked out there, laughed her husband. Hmm, something smells nice. You been baking? No, well, yes. I made some puff pastry for the chicken and leek pie later. Tom sniffed the air. Smells sort of sweetish, though. A bit like cherries. I think you're hallucinating, dear. Probably in need of a sugar rush. How about a nice cup of tea and a chocolate biscuit? Sounds good. Got the paper, by the way, although it is a little damp. More than a little damp, Dad. You need a hairdryer to sort that out, said Claire. Do you want tea, darling? said Margaret, turning to her daughter. No, I'm fine, honestly. I'd just change out of these wet clothes, if that's okay. Oh, look, she said. I think it's clearing up. They stared out of the window. The sky was patched with blue. The sun peering from behind a curtain of grey cloud, like an actor with stage fright. Typical, said Tom. The afternoon brightened enough for the three of them to venture out into the garden. Tom wiped down the metal garden chairs with an old tea towel and adorned them with some blue and cream striped cushions from the garage. Claire made them all a jug of sangria and regaled them with tales of her housemates. How inept they were at cooking and how one of them had got so drunk at a wedding reception that he had toppled backwards into a hedge where he lay helpless like an upturned beetle until some of his friends had rescued him. Margaret leant back in her chair, the sun warming her face, and felt her anger at her husband slowly seep away. At one point, Claire disappeared into the garage to find some more ice from the freezer for the sangria. She came back, not with the ice, but brandishing two hula hoops. Remember these, Dad? You taught me how to use one of these when I was ten years old, which is a bit of a joke, because if I remember, you were pretty rubbish at it. I was not, said Tom. I think I was pretty good. Well, you can prove it now then, said Claire. You're on. Hand me one of them and I'll show you how it's done. Tom gingerly stepped into the hoop and lifted it to his waist. He expertly spun the hoop, his hips moving smoothly to keep it spinning. Not bad for an old un, laughed Claire. 
Lots of the old one, if you don't mind, said Tom. And he winked at Margaret. Margaret smiled up at him. She had a vision of their wedding day. He had turned and winked at her in exactly the same way when she arrived at his side, having made her way nervously up the aisle of the church. She had giggled, and from that moment on, the day had flown by in a euphoric rush. God, how she had loved him, she thought, and how giddy and fun-filled their early days together had been. Then she remembered the muffins. I have to get rid of them. What was I thinking? Have I lost my mind? You're all right, Margaret. You look... I'm fine. I've forgotten to do something. I'll be back in a second. Is it something I can help with? said Tom. Oh, no, no. It's fine, honestly. She went back into the kitchen and stared at them. They weren't looking back. They were laughing and smiling and engaged in animated conversation. The sun disappeared behind some clouds and it seemed suddenly darker. She bent down to retrieve the cake tin and carefully lifted the lid. She had made six muffins. Two were missing. <laughs>